What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. All I'm saying is there's more to life than just surviving. Yeah, there's dying. It's knowing when to bluster and when to hush. When to take a beating and when to strike. That sounds exactly like the advice you gave me when I joined the show, Adam. Well, you do know how to take a beating, Josh. That's Michael Fassbender as mysterious loner Silas Selleck in the new film Slow West, an award winner earlier this year at the Sundance Film Festival. Coming up on the show, a review of the New Zealand shot Western, plus this week's Film Spotting Top 5 movie posters. That and lots more ahead on Film Spotting. Spotting is presented by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. This one has a pretty good movie poster, Josh. It is Bong Joon-ho's mother currently playing over at Mubi. It's the next film in their can lineup, a Mother's Day special, if you will. Of course, Bong Joon-ho, best known for The Host and Last Scene with Snowpiercer, he brought this acclaimed genre hybrid to can. It's a slippery thriller, sharp detours, and a really wonderful lead performance by a devoted mother for our time, Kim Haija. Also part of the can lineup is We Can't Go Home Again. Not one to be dulled by age, Nicholas Ray, this is the maverick behind Johnny Guitar and Rebel Without a Cause, came to Cannes in 1973 with a cut of his most experimental film yet, A Radical Impassioned Journey into American Chaos. This avant-garde swan song is now open to all and restored in HD. Everyday Movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, and that's all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Filmspotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. To prep for this week's show, we attempted to expand our knowledge of movie poster designers from one to at least two. We both know Saul Bass mainly because of his work with Hitchcock, not so much on the movie poster side, but the title sequences. We did that top five several months ago. But beyond Bass, we were a bit clueless, would I you say? Bass made all the movie posters. He didn't? Apparently not. Oh, oh boy. It doesn't seem like you've prepared at all. <laughs> A little behind. Well, for this week's top five movie posters, we brought in a bit of an expert, a designer, and friend of the show and fellow podcaster, Sam Smith. More on all that and more from Sam later in the show. But first, it's not movie posters, but wanted posters that drive much of the action in Slow West, an 1870s set western from writer-director John McLean. Once upon a time, Jake Cavendish traveled from the cold shoulder of Scotland baking heart of America to find his love a jackrabbit in a den of wolves arms abroad boy sir I'm Jay Cavendish son of Lady Cavendish we're all sons of bitches keep heading west solo you'll be dead by dawn I take care of myself 
Well, speaking of a lack of preparation, despite having a full week off with the great Tasha Robinson from The Dissolve capably filling in for me, here we are to discuss Slow West, and I don't have the usual intricately crafted setup for you, Josh. You just I just watched saw it. this. I literally just saw you, it. You like I barely know what I think weeks. about it. I know. I know. And you wait till the day of the show. That's really a discussion I'm for glad to know. Time. I'm glad to know I'm a priority for you. <laughs> well, here's what I'm going to give you. This is, we've said it now multiple times, a Western, though a Western shot in New Zealand, written and directed by a first-time filmmaker, a Scotsman. It's a film starring an Australian playing a Scotsman. He's a 16-year-old kid who comes over from Scotland to seek out his true love, who, as we learn from some flashback sequences, fled Scotland and is on the run with her father in the American West. Of course, it also stars an Irish-German, that being Michael Fassbender, who plays the loner, the gunman outlaw that Smith McPhee's Jay comes across, fortunately, in that moment, actually, as he does probably save his life. Pretty simple. Jay pays him some money to get him safely to where his one true love has established a home with her father. One of the things that struck me watching the opening credits of the film was seeing Michael Fassbender's name as an executive producer on the movie. So presumably this wasn't just a case of someone bringing him a script and making him an offer and him saying, okay, yeah, I'll do your movie. But he had an interest from the beginning in making sure this film got shepherded through and did make its way to screens. Now, it may have been because he has some kind of prior relationship with the writer-director John McLean, who was previously probably best known for being in the beta band. He formed that band and also the band The Aliens. He's made a couple short films, and Fassbender starred, I believe, in both of those films, including 2009's Man on a Motorcycle. So he had that element. But beyond that, what do you think, watching the film... And thinking about it as you have, because you prepared much more than I did, I've been Josh. thinking about this for weeks. I know you have. What do you think drew Fassbender to this material? Did you get a sense watching it beyond simply it hopefully being a good script? What was it that spoke to him about this character and this material? Why did we need another Western? Well, first of all, you're telling me there's nothing American about this Western, essentially? I mean, I... I Say it's, it's true. Must be thoroughly inauthentic. Ben also inauthentic stars. Then there's he's no, Australian. You know, American West, and there's nothing American about it. I don't know how I feel about that. Why did Fassbender want to make this? I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he likes westerns. Maybe it was the McLean relationship, um, and the story itself. I do think you can see him in this performance being playful and having some fun with what is an iconic Western character that he's taken on here. The lawless man on his own, the man with no name, uh, the mystery outlaw. And that was fun. I think you even get the cigarillo. Is that what those things are called? I think so. That, that he's smoking a lot of lot of Eastwood affectations without this getting outside of the story. No. I think he keeps it within the frame of the story, but you can tell that's on his mind. He even says kid a lot. Yeah. I thought I was watching Unforgiven. There's a little bit of a twinkle to this performance, which I thought was enjoyable, you know, to see him doing that. Uh, I don't know that this will go down among the great Fassbender performances. He doesn't even really have the most screen time, I would say. I think it's very much a supporting part, but it is it is fun to watch, especially if you are 
a fan of his. I, that is the question. Why another Western? We talked about this when we did our Sacred Cow review of Unforgiven and how in this now really post-revisionist era of Westerns, what do you do now that they've been thoroughly deconstructed? Maybe the bravest thing to do is just make a straight up, straightforward Western. Mm-hmm. And we've gotten some of those. I think 310 to Yuma not too long ago was along those lines and was enjoyable. This does just enough, I'd say, to justify itself as an idiosyncratic approach to the genre. And there are a couple of things McLean brings to it that we can talk about. The one I'd maybe want to start with is what struck me right away is that there are dollops of magical realism in this film. Not a ton of them so that you would call it a magical realist Western But just little touches here and there. And the first one is when Jay is lying on his back looking at the stars in the sky. He's pointing out the constellations to himself and then points his gun at stars and pretends to fire. And what happens is each star that he's been pointing at twinkles a little bit, gives a little glow. So I thought, well, that's an interesting touch. And there are a few other things here or there that essentially reinforce this idea that here's a stranger in a really strange land and there are almost metaphysical slash spiritual elements to this world that neither he nor we may fully understand, but it is part of the experience of being in a new place and being out of place. So I appreciated that touch that McLean emphasized in the film. Yeah, I did as well, though, without getting into all the specific cases you may be thinking of. I'm not sure... I see it so much as magical realism. I think that opening scene, looking at the stars, certainly that's the director imposing a touch. You could make the case that, of course, that's the perspective of the kid looking at the sky. And so he sees him with that little extra bit of twinkle. But it's certainly not really happening. There are other cases throughout the movie that I'm not so sure there isn't a perfectly practical, physical explanation for. But there is something about the way this whole movie is constructed and it having a little bit of a lyrical dreamlike quality. And there are actual dreams. That may be it too. There are some dreams, there are flashbacks. So all of that together, including that outsider sensibility that you get in the form of that main character, but also everybody he sees, you joked about this, but that's one of the things I really appreciated about the movie was that so many Westerns really are about, of course, the Americans who move across the country and kick the natives out. And so all we get are usually some Indian characters and we get the cowboys, the outlaws, whoever. Think about how many people throughout this film you meet, even if it's just for brief little spurts, who are clearly from another country. They really do represent this melting pot that, of course, America truly was at the time. I can't even keep track of all the different accents we hear in the different foreigners we meet in this movie. Nobody is home, right? Uh, They're all from someplace else except for the people who are home and have been home there for centuries. They're the ones getting kicked out. Mm -hmm. The movie is very attuned, as many Westerns have come to be, very attuned to the experience of Native Americans, even though it doesn't provide us with a Native American character that we get to know. In almost Every third scene, there is some sort of illusion if it's maybe Jay walking through a burned down camp of Native Americans Mm -hmm. after it's been attacked or another scene where someone comes flying out of the forest on foot and there are men hunting him. And we just get this throughout reiterated the fact that the only people at home in this land are the ones being moved out. Without a doubt, I really did appreciate that. And I think you're right as well to note the way almost like 
we talked about with the movie Cinderella, where all these revisionists, the fairy tale, the Western, whatever, maybe it is now almost revisionist to just play it straight. I think this movie pretty much does that. But I think that one of the things it's really successful at is both not overly romanticizing the West, while at the same time, clearly not trying to demythologize it completely or make references to a lot of other movies, despite the fact that maybe we can't help but see a little bit of Eastwood and what Fassbender is doing. It's as if the director and writer here, McLean, as well as the cinematographer, Robbie Ryan, and there are just some gorgeous shots in this movie. Absolutely beautiful. Except the grandeur of the West, the hope of the West. And the grandeur is part of that, right? It's what brings you out there and constantly gives you that sense that despite what travails we're running into and how much we're toiling along the way it's somehow going to lead to something better and this movie really does get that right because what you have in the form of these two characters who meet and i guess you can say befriend each other get to know each other and share something of each other along the way is you have one character in fastbender silas who is completely numb to it who no longer sees the grandeur in nature in the west in anything around him just sees it as desolation and desperados out there trying to take what belongs to him. So he's going to try to get his. And then you've got the character of Jay, the 16 year old who still sees that grandeur, still sees that wonder. And home is exactly right because that is literally where he's trying to get. He's trying to get to this house where he's going to hopefully be united with this woman he pines for. And so that sense of eventually settling down, finding whatever it is you're looking for, that same dream. And a character says that at one point. He meets this character, Werner, out in the middle of nowhere. I love this scene. I do too. And he asks him what's coming from the east or what's back east, since that's where he's coming from, Jay. And he says, what about the west? And he says, dreams. Dreams and toil. But that's what's there. And so the Jay character fits perfectly within that scheme because he's not out looking for his fortunes, but he does have a similar dream. And based on the flashbacks that we get in terms of setting up their past relationship, it truly is that. It's a dream. It's this dream that has probably just as much folly attached to it, even though he doesn't see it, as those people who are heading out west to try to get rich. Yeah, and I like that reading because it helps me a little bit with one of the problems I had with the film is the interaction among characters. I think Smith McPhee gives us a good grasp on this kid. He has this sort of pale delicacy. He's so vulnerable in this environment, and we come to really worry about him. Fassbender, we've talked about, has a very firm grasp on Silas. Uh, I like how he plays him also as a bit of a Sam Spade, a film noir character, in that he's, you know, he has just a little bit more scruples than all the lawless people around him, and that's what's going to get him in trouble, is the fact that he holds to those. (laughs) He even uses the match the same way a hard-boiled detective would. He does. So individually, these are really rich characters, but going to your view of this romantic relationship, Mm -hmm. the interactions between the characters, I didn't feel quite as thick, either between Silas and Jay, that bond we were supposed to get between them. I didn't quite feel it as much as the narrative needed us to. And the bond between Jay and Rose, I certainly didn't. Now, your reading of those flashbacks makes sense to me in that, in a sense, it is this idealized version in his head of what they had together and maybe explains why I never bought that. And especially when it comes to the climax, because I think what happens is that is an expose of 
the dangers of naivete, mm-hmm. really. And it comes from naivete in entering a strange land, in dealing with strangers, and in what it means to love and be in love. So, again, I do think overall the movie could be stronger in the character interactions, but maybe that explains away a little bit of it. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new Western starring Michael Fassbender, Slow West. It is available not just in limited theatrical release, but if you are curious about this movie at all, want to know what we're talking about, it's available via video on demand as well. I know cable on demand certainly starting this weekend. So it is a movie most people out there listening can probably get access to. And really what I'm getting at, I think maybe we read it a little bit differently, though you're kind of on board with where I'm going. I actually think that it's not at all those flashbacks the way he perceives it. I think it's a sly rhetorical touch on the part of the director to make those very much objective. Because if you watch the flashbacks, it's not so much the character flashing back and imbuing these scenes with more love and more tenderness than they really had. It really is the director playing them pretty straight and pretty flat and saying, yeah, that's true. You know what? This kid thinks he's in love with her and that she has those same feelings for him. But if you go back and watch the scenes, it really is maybe a friendship at best. And again, that adds to that sort of sense of folly and that sense of humor that the director has throughout. You even do get in touches like where there's a little pause as they're going through the woods and they come across a man, I think it's a Native American, who seems to have died because he chopped down a tree and then the tree fell on him. You know, the fact that The director takes a moment for them to consider the folly of that and to actually see that despite all the killing that happens in this movie, and the movie does draw a lot of attention to that. I wonder if we'll get there at some point. There is a lot of it. Some people in this world still die because of goofy accidents like that. They die by their own hand because they just don't know what they're doing, gets back to your notion of naivete. Yeah, we talked about, before we got started here, whether this could be described as a comedy. I know that Tasha, last week, when she was on the show with me, said that it struck her as that a little bit. And uh, I said, well, I think I only laughed out loud once. That wasn't the scene I was talking about, actually. I do think it's funny, but I was thinking about the scene where the way it plays out, it stretches out, is very tense, and then ends with a punchline. They're standing in the middle of the woods, and all of a sudden, Jay sees a figure through the trees and doesn't realize that it's a Native American taking aim at him with a bow and arrow. Yeah shoots him in the hand and then these other two Native Americans jump out to steal their horses but the horses have a rope tying them it hits a tree and the guys go flying I mean it's almost slapstick it is and and Fassbender's reaction to it too is very matter of fact just kind of like this could happen to him every day out here in the west this is just what happens a nice touch there in in allowing the the Native Americans to be a threat to to them so it's not just this sort of hippy dippy um, viewpoint on what is happening to them them as a people, it also recognizes that they're part of the danger of this area, too. So, yeah, there there definitely are some comic touches in this film that work really well. And I wanted to get back to what you're talking about in terms of the use of landscape. For me, it emphasized it, and maybe it's because it was New Zealand and it's not what I'm used to seeing exactly as the American West. 
as this alien landscape that, uh, you know, certainly Jay is unfamiliar with, but even I felt a little bit unfamiliar with. There was a lot of attention paid to maybe it's just because they're different plants that I didn't recognize. But the flora in this movie, mm-hmm. I think of the scene where they're coming through this. It appears to be a desert, but then there's this prairie with these purplish blue flowers sticking up almost directly upright. And it looks like it could be some imagined vision of a, an alien landscape, although they, of course, look very much like Western figures and the cinematography in the climactic shootout between a number of parties, all everyone converges and it comes together. And one of the areas here is I think it's a wheat field. It Mm -hmm. looks like some something has been planted and it's about maybe two, three feet off the ground, just brilliant gold. And one figure uses that as a hideout. The sky behind them is completely blue, Mm -hmm. brilliant blue. And it just has this sort of idyllic Western peacefulness. And then maybe here comes some of the comic irony is that here is where the majority of the movie's bloodshed unfolds. Yeah, that's, I think, a good reading in the sense that it's almost this oasis, this potential for a sort of utopia, this home out here amidst all of the cragginess of the landscape at times. It's really gorgeous. And yet it is then broken completely by all the bloodshed. And I think the phrase you used about it being matter-of-fact in some ways, that's what I really appreciated about how that whole bloody showdown unfolded because it's really not mine for melodrama at all. It's very quick. It's very effective. And actually, the better word for it, I think, is it's purposeful. You know, everything happens because it needs to happen for a reason. Certain characters go down because they need to go down and they need to go down in the way that they do. And the director isn't lingering necessarily on all of the different dynamics. At the same time, there is enough attention paid to some of those exchanges between characters that do add up to something ultimately. But the sense of purpose to it, I think, is really in keeping with the rest of the film because it applies to, for example, Fassbender's character in terms of the way he views the world, right? I like the fact, for example, when he sort of rescues jay again at one point he finds him out in the middle of nowhere he's been robbed of all of his things he's just wearing his pajamas basically his undergarments and a blanket and he comes across him again and the kid says to him here this is the rest of the money i got just get me to where i'm going safely well that's the deal they struck originally the kid decided to get a little smart and it backfired against him and as you're watching it you're wondering well why would fassbender's character even come back for him Well, he'd come back for him for that very practical reason, because he knows the kid still has some money. And if he can get that out of him by then getting him to where he needs to go, he knows the kid isn't going to turn on him this time and he's going to get every cent from him that he needs. So there's always a sense of practicality and a sense of purpose to how these characters live. And I think it's matched with the direction, especially at the end. What does this movie linger over, though? It's something that a lot of Westerns don't. A lot of films don't that include violence and that's the bodies of those who have been killed this movie had a really striking coda to me that i'm sure it's been done in some form before but after the action has concluded it pauses to have a still shot almost a tableau framing of the victims and it goes further than just that scene either after we've seen those victims or maybe before but it goes back to the beginning of the film and i believe every yeah literally everyone who dies who has in the course been of the killed movie. in this film in a violent act the movie goes back to and just rests on for a few seconds mm-hmm. and it gave the ending uh, the feeling of awake almost you know like yeah. like you're back there to remember 
and just give some sort of honoring to. And and I don't know how maybe that does or does not lend weight to the violence of mm-hmm. the film, but it did for me. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. It's really remarkable. And you're right. Maybe a film has done it before. Maybe a Western has even done it before. But something about by the time you get to the end of the film, and I don't think we're spoiling anything to say it ends on a happy note, despite everything that we've said. And despite the fact that in some ways it's not a happy ending, I think ultimately you have to see it that way. And yet, because McLean gives us that reckoning with all those bodies, you see the count along the way. It really makes that even more seem earned somehow. Yeah, it makes no, that's it all a good feel like it isn't just about eventually things work out or they don't work out for certain characters and they do for others. But it really is about recognizing, especially if we're going to equate it like I want to, with that hope of progress of the West and the dreams that you're hoping to realize. Yeah, that's great. What happens when you do get there? But what was the cost along the way? The movie literally makes you think of the cost. Yeah, it recognizes the cost and it also doesn't rub your face and it's like some sort of, oh, you've been enjoying this all film long. Well, Mm -hmm. now take this. Remember what you've been enjoying. It's not that tone at all. No, it doesn't feel that way. it's It's holding everything in tension. Yeah, I do agree with you that I think It's surprising the movie is only 84 minutes long when you consider that they certainly could have done more with the Jay and Silas relationship. There's a point that maybe, again, isn't really a spoiler because you kind of see it coming or else you know there's not going to be much of a story where they do end up on the same side, where he ultimately isn't just there as a mercenary for Jay, but they've developed some kind of bond, except I don't know that we really ever feel like that bond is earned. No, I don't you know, feel we there's, did. Yeah, there's something interesting about that character, Silas, because at one point he seems absolutely merciless enough that he recognizes that the only way he's going to survive, and that's what this is all about for him, is if he doesn't take on any baggage, if he isn't empathetic to what's around him and really does just keep his eye on moment to moment what he needs. At the same time, then, the movie kind of asks us to see something more in him that would explain why he would sort of turn and all of a sudden be on Jay's side. Is it really because, as he says at one point in the voiceover, he just sees the world differently? Is there something about him and his spirit that's so easily able to transform Fassbender's character, or is there truly something missing? I mean, is the director maybe asking us to to buy in a little more than we can? I think this might go back to my understanding of magical realism elements and it has to do with jay and his effect on the land i don't think it works because then i would have felt that relationship and that reasoning be stronger what you're talking about but i think what was attempted is that jay has some sort of effect on people there is that other scene where he comes across a group of men in the middle of a field who are singing together for no reason i mean i I suppose they could be on their own journey and they just pause to sing Uh, but they're singing the song jay passes them and they ask him in French, I believe. Yeah. Do you like our song? And Jay responds in French. Now, we've been given no reason to suspect why he may know French. We get a sense he's from the upper class in Scotland. Maybe he was taught See, yeah. French. And, and there could be reasons right. to explain it away. But but it's very odd that it would come up here. And certainly these men could be from a French-speaking country. Right. So, so yeah, you could explain away. But it was also sort of this, it goes back to what you were saying is that Jay might have had an effect on Silas mm-hmm. in some way. I, I feel like he does have that sort of uh, different connection with this group. And he has this, he's in touch with this world as bizarre as it is to him. 
in a way, he makes some sort of connection to it. I feel like we're supposed to understand. Now, does the movie do a good job of making us buy mm-hmm. that and how it works on their relationship? I'd say it falters a bit there. Yeah, that's it. You're right that that sequence is interesting where he comes across those men singing because at first you think, this doesn't make any sense at all. This is absurd. But then when you do learn a little bit more about his character later and realize that he was from the aristocracy yeah, where he came from, yeah. he probably was versed in a language like French. But I think back on it, Josh, and I remember the way Fassbender's character rides right by him, pays them no mind at all, almost as if you They're could argue, there. yeah, he They're doesn't know there. if they are there. Yeah. So I love that there is enough of that ambiguity in the film that you can latch onto it or kind of play with it in your mind. But does it really explain enough the bond those two men eventually have? I'm not sure that it does, even as I like the fact probably that it doesn't over explain the bond at the same time. I wonder if you thought at all about another movie Cody Smith McPhee starred in the first movie I think any of us saw him in. I was thinking about The Road a lot as I watched this movie. I had forgotten he was in that. Yeah, he's the boy in The Road, which is another movie about survival at all costs. Everybody in this landscape, now it's a much harsher landscape and it's not shot as beautifully. There's no sense of real grandeur to that hellish dystopian landscape that we get in The Road. But again, this one character who has a sense of of hope about him who's trying to look to some kind of future trying to stay alive while everybody around him is just out for themselves I thought about it anyway he's somewhat of a similar figure in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes that's the one I oh, thought good of him point. in so yeah, yeah he's, he's apparently getting typecast maybe maybe he is that is Slow West again not only playing in limited release in theaters but also out now via video on demand if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net When we come back, the film spotting poll has listeners weighing in on the career of Tomorrowland director Brad Bird, which, to my mind, is without blemish. Plus, designer Sam Smith drops by to give us some direction for this week's top five movie posters. Stay with us. there was a place, a secret place, where nothing was impossible. No way. A miraculous place, where you could actually change the world. Welcome back to Film Spotting. George Clooney there from the trailer for Tomorrowland, one of the summer's highly anticipated movies. In fact, Josh, last week on the show, 
you named it your number one most anticipated movie of the summer. Can't wait. Yeah, you shared that last week with guest host Tasha Robinson. My thanks to Tasha for filling in. We'll get to a review of Tomorrowland in a few weeks. That's the plan right now. It opens wide next Friday. But first, we want to know what you think of Tomorrowland director Brad Bird. So this week's poll question is coming up in a bit. But first... Let's get to the results from our last poll question a couple weeks ago, anticipating the release this weekend of Mad Max Fury Road. We asked you, Fury Road, you had me at Mad Max, Tom Hardy, George Miller, the director, the trailer, or you don't have me. So how interested, how excited are you in seeing Mad Max Fury Road? And what's the reason? Was it one of those four or do you have no reason at all? Josh, how did it come out? Well, surprisingly to me, nostalgia does not seem to be playing a big factor in this. George Miller, last place, 8% as the reason. Mad Max, just the character, 11% only. Then we got a big jump up in the middle. Maybe this doesn't bode well for our upcoming review, but 21% of voters said you don't have me at all. Might have to try to change their minds there. Up the top, though, Tom Hardy in second place, 27%, and the trailer is the winning reason, 32%. So a little bit of a surprise. Wouldn't you have guessed that Tom Hardy was the reason, at least Among our, our listeners, listeners, Tom Hardy, and I really expected nostalgia to play a bigger role in this. Yeah, Mad Max maybe going with that option. But no, the trailer. At least a third of our listeners saw the trailer and said, I want to see that movie. And that brings us to some listener feedback, including this bit from Aaron Teachman in Washington, D.C., who says, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome was a regular part of the film rotation in my house while I was growing up. I have fond memories of watching it. So there you go. Nostalgia. But I also remember realizing slowly that, you know what? This isn't a very good movie. Like, at all. Actually, this is terrible. (laughs) It kind of tainted Mad Max for me. I've never gone back to the original, so Mad Max, George Miller, and Tom Hardy added up to something that could possibly be interesting, but it wasn't getting me out of the house. Then I saw the trailer. The trailer bursts with visual energy. Every frame is packed with activity and pageantry. The stakes are immediately enormous. Life and death at hair-trigger speeds. I think Aaron knows if you mention stakes, you'll get red on the show. And that's before the gigantic sandstorm subsumes the battling convoys. When the trailer was over, I discovered that I'd already mentally budgeted a few dollars more to see this on the biggest screen possible, and I was totally okay with it. Do yourself a favor, though, Aaron. At least see The Road Warrior before you go see Fury Road. I mean, that's kind of a sad experience of the Mad Max franchise if you've only seen Beyond Thunderdome. Isaac Rosso Klakovich from Chapel Hill, North Carolina said, I heavily debated between Tom Hardy and you never had me, yet in the end went with Hardy. For a while, the trailer made me think it would become nothing but a brainless post-apocalyptic action film with little to no plot. Hardy has become one of those actors that I will see anything he is in. It is hard for me to believe that he would have chosen to be in this unless he knew it would be a good film, considering his amazing track record over the past five years. With the Drop, The Dark Knight Rises, Inception, and Warrior, which may not all be great films, but he is great in them. Yeah, he pretty much across the board is great in those movies, though Isaac Rosso Klakovich is not in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. There's no way because that's a character from Woody Allen's Love and Death. I think that's a made-up name that's stolen right out of You might Love be onto something. <laughs> we have another Isaac, though, Isaac Kester in Olathe, Kansas, who says, deep down in all of our hearts, there's a longing a need for restoration. If we all searched inside ourselves, we'd realize how great our need for Tom Hardy is. We saw him sit in a car and talk for an entire movie, and he sold us on it completely. Now we'll see him sit in a car and not talk for an entire movie, and it'll be a brooding performance for the ages. I'm hoping by 2016 they'll just start making films where he walks angrily for two hours. Hold out hope there, Isaac. I would certainly... No doubt, call that a masterpiece. That will be a five-star film spotting picture when we just see Tom Hardy walk and 
do nothing else or say nothing else. One more note here from Patricia. She's in Portland, Oregon. Where is You Had Me at Charlize Theron's Crew Cut? Yeah. Hey, you and know you've what? you've just seen the movie, so I've how good is the it. crew cut? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. As much as I love Tom Hardy, Charlize Theron owns this movie. I bet she does. Yeah. And someone had mentioned before that they had seen preview screenings and that they shared screen time. Mm -hmm. I think a listener had mentioned that to us, uh, which sounded promising. That is true. They certainly do. And she certainly deserves all that time. All right. So you've seen it. I have not seen it yet. It will be discussed on an upcoming show, though. We're not sure which host will be discussing it. That's for <laughs> another time. The review we know, the host yeah. is up in the air. Absolutely. <laughs> a little reversal. So let's get to this week's poll question. With Bradbird's Tomorrowland, our anticipated review a couple weeks off, we decided to see where Film Spotting Nation fell on Bird's filmography, which through four films, it's pretty much unimpeachable. Oh, He's yeah. made four really good movies. Those movies are, in chronological order, The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. So, Josh, you said your Sophie's Choice was The Iron Giant and Ratatouille. Have you made a decision? Yes. In in the minute and 30 seconds since I said that, I have gone with Ratatouille. It is Ratatouille. Really? Yes. Confident with Ratatouille. So, for me, it'd be a tougher choice between The Iron Giant and The Incredibles, or okay. The Iron Giant even and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Really? I really like that movie. I do like it quite a bit. It's just a little lower tier than those sure. animated efforts. I think I'd go with The Iron Giant, though. Respectable The Iron Giant, choice. my favorite Brad Bird film. We want to know which one is your favorite. Vote now at filmspotting.net. And if you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're writing from. We have a little bit of bonus content this week, Josh. We're going to get finally to some Breakfast Club Sacred Cow feedback. Wow, that's been a while. It has been a while. We got some great responses from Ron in Seattle, Louisa in New Zealand, and the Reverend Robert Lewis in Damascus, Maryland. They all share interesting personal perspectives on the movie, Josh, and they do crush the Allison makeover controversy. Once and oh. for all, it's dead. <laughs> no point in talking about it anymore because our listeners it's been nail it. so raging since. It has been. <laughs> <laughs> can't escape that controversy. Lots of great feedback from those listeners and others. If you want to hear that, go to filmspotting.net and click on apps for all the ways you can access it. Basically, if you have the Film Spotting app, you can not only hear the shows, usually before they go out to the general public via iTunes, you can get that show a little bit earlier if you have the app and you also get access to that bonus content. Again, filmspotting.net slash apps. Are you an exchange student or... A tourist. Yes. That's a clip from the trailer for a movie, Josh, that we both want to catch up with and plan to at some point, but haven't yet. That is Kumiko the Treasure Hunter, which just opened in select cities, I want to say four or five weeks ago, did have a limited run here in Chicago, stars Rinko Kikuchi, and... The poster for that movie, the official poster for IFC Films, was designed by our upcoming guest, Sam Smith. And longtime listeners of the show will know Sam from one or two appearances. His voice has certainly been heard, at least in voicemails over the years. But he also contributes via our Top 10 Roundtable shows, where we share our Top 10 Films of the Year every December. And we like to sprinkle throughout those shows in our musical breaks the best scores of the year in movies, and Sam Smith is the man who curates those because he's not only a great graphic designer, he is also a musician. But for the purposes of this top five that we're getting into, Josh, our top five movie 
posters, Sam really was the inspiration. And not only has he designed the official posters for Kumiko the Treasure Hunter, he also did Enemy and Post Tenebrous Lux and Carlos, the great movie from Olivier Asayas. He's also done Criterion Collection cover art for Solaris, Showa, and the Katsi Trilogy. And if you haven't seen Sam's artwork for Modern Times, the Charlie Chaplin film, That is maybe my favorite one of all the cover art Sam has done. He has recently started a podcast of his own called The Poster Boys with fellow designer Brandon Schaefer. They get together, talk all things graphic design, share their influences, and explore and celebrate the titans of poster design history. We figured we could not share our top five movie posters without getting some insight from Sam Smith. And we are going to do that now. We bring him in via telephone. I believe he is in Philadelphia right now on tour currently with Ben Folds. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome What's to the up, show. Adam? Thanks for having me, man. Well, I want to start with the podcast. We're going to get to your top five and get into kind of what you look for in movie posters. But just in terms of the origins of the show, what possessed you? What inspired you to start a podcast devoted to movie posters? Yeah, well, kind of just poster design in general and graphic design in general, because my good friend and colleague, Brandon Schaefer, he, like me, was just doing posters for fun. And we found each other online, and eventually, you know, we're looking at each other's designs on Flickr and stuff back in the day, and we started chatting on Insta Messenger. And when you're like a freelance artist or designer, it's kind of fun and nice to have someone else on like Insta Messenger that you can like, in the middle of the day, kind of procrastinate with and talk to about your stuff or whatever. Or did you see this? Or how's this project going? Let me see a sketch or let me see a draft. And so we just, we talk all the time about uh, design and poster design. And so eventually we were like, we should just get on the phone and record it and have a podcast. Probably no one will listen. And it won't be a really professional podcast unless it ends up going in that direction. But we wanted to just say, hey, this might be fun. And if anyone wants to listen, then great. So let's get to our top five a little bit then. Think all about right. movie posters. Obviously, you're doing that every time you record an episode. But is there any kind of umbrella you can put on this? Is there something that you found, some common threads, some common design elements that really draw you to posters? What are you looking for in what makes a great movie poster? Yeah, well, I mean, there's so many styles and approaches, and a lot of it is like depending on what conditions the artist's were working in at the time given like were they working with big studios in Hollywood or they were they working in a totally different government and society where they could do whatever they wanted like you have with the Polish poster school of post World War II and in Cuba and all these other places where you have this amazing movie poster art where these artists are doing these totally different renderings of movies we all know and love but at the end of the day even including all the Hollywood posters I really for me it just has to the way I would describe it, it has to be iconic. What I mean by that is, like, I want to put this up against any other great song or piece of art or photograph, and it's just like, it's going to stand the test of time. You're going to remember it. And, it, like, you want it on a T-shirt or you want it hanging in your wall or you want it on a little button that you wear on your jacket. It's going to be, and for me, in that way, it's often going to be, like, a reductive kind of simple design. Or I wouldn't say minimal because... That opens up a whole other can of worms, but something reductive and iconic and simple. And for me, especially with color, I love color. So 
those kind of designs are going to rise to the top for me. Okay, that all makes sense. And I think Josh and I, as we get into our list a little bit later in the show, have a similar approach, though I don't know that we articulated it as well as you just did. (laughs) Without spoiling your top five, which designers are essential for you? And I guess who right now, not only throughout cinema history, but who right now are the names that if there's someone out there listening to the show right now who's curious about this and maybe just starting to get into design and movie posters and title sequences, who are the names and the people they should really be investigating? Wow, yeah, that's a great question. Well, I do love Brandon's work, my co-host, and he does all, he cranks them out for a lot of uh, smaller distributors and companies now. He always does great work. Neil Kellerhouse has a kind of an agency, a group of people, and he does designs himself as well. And he's done some great recent posters that for Gone Girl, Under the Skin, a bunch of uh, Criterion covers as well. Akiko Sternberger works with him. She does like hand-painted posters you might have seen for like Kiss of the Damned and Funny Games, the U.S. version, which is one of my favorites of the, the last 15 years or so. Then you have boutiques like Mondo who are doing licenses for old classic films and new films, and they're getting artists to do totally different takes on them that really don't have all the constraints you have from a big studio that wants to advertise the film all over the place. And so you have uh, Jay Shaw and uh, Ollie Moss and people like that doing really cool art for new movies and for classics like Star Wars. Well, let's get into your list then. We've heard a lot of good stuff about your picks or how you go about choosing them, but what are your top five all-time favorite movie posters? This is weird. Like, Also, I sympathize with you guys for having to talk about something that's like visual because I feel like even more so with posters, you know, maybe you can post the pictures on your site or something because it's hard to talk about something that people are listening to that's just purely visual. But I'll do my best. And maybe people have heard of some of these posters or seen them. Like my top five, which is kind of the poster from my childhood that I'm putting in the mix. There's so many, but the poster for The Rocketeer, and it's done in this Art Deco style, which is something you wouldn't expect like a nine-year-old to like immediately respond to, but I guess it was so fresh and different at the time. The artist is John Matos, and it's just kind of along with the Batman teaser poster, which is just the Batman logo on black, and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, <laughs> movie poster with uh, the turtles coming out of the sewer, and the Dick Tracy also. Those were like, that was when I was coming of age and like starting to see movies, and those were the first posters that ever caught my eye, and I would try to draw them, and uh, especially the Rocketeer, I would I spent days just trying to draw that and recreate it. So it kind of like taught me a little bit about graphics and drawing, too, to hmm. discover that poster. Great pick. Your number four? Number four, Saul Bass. He did a lot of the famous title sequences of the mid-century and beyond, and uh, he did Psycho, um, a lot of Hitchcock uh, title sequences. He's just kind of... I would call him the greatest like graphic designer because, especially poster artists, we covered him in our first two episodes on the podcast because there was so much to say about him. Um, but I love his work because it's just very colorful and uh, reductive. He kind of like he makes a film into like a symbol or an icon that can be used in not just the poster but in any kind of advertisement or whatever. And so I would pick uh, Anatomy of a Murder, where you have the title treatment kind of sandwiched inside this cut-up graphic body, and he also puts it on these two just big, bold, kind of modern 
colored squares, yellow and red. And it's just a beautiful design. Mm -hmm. So I just love it aesthetically. Yeah, I do too. So simple and yet so perfect and so clever. Yeah. And he did it with a man with the golden arm as well and uh, vertigo and a bunch of other posters. All right. He's just the king for me. Got it. Number three. Number three is a tie for you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Is Stolen Kisses, the Truffaut film. There's a Cuban poster and a French poster. And I love both of them. They're two of my favorite designs I've ever seen. Mainly because you don't have uh, like the actors' faces. You just have a, a more abstract version of their face. And both of these posters used almost the same image, although they're different. It's just a nose and lips. And in the French version, you have kind of a sexy uh, photograph with a nice bold pink field of color slapped over it and a nice little white type on the lips. And then the Cuban poster, you have just the black image of the face on white, but then the, the red lips are like offset. And that gets into where the poster is actually saying, starting to say something about the film. And uh, I don't, that's a whole other conversation as to what it would be saying. But I like when a poster does try to say something about the, the content or the theme of the film. And some posters are more aesthetic. Some kind of go to great lengths to really make a statement about what the film might actually be saying content-wise or thematically. Mm -hmm. All right, we're at your top two. Okay, number two, Rosemary's Baby. It's uh, designed by Stephen Frankfurt and Robert Gibson. He was known as kind of like the Don Draper of his time, I guess, and he had his ad firm. They would create this whole brand for a movie, and uh, they did a really successful job, I think, with this poster. I love, like, the green. You don't really see green posters a lot. It's just something you notice when you start looking mm-hmm. at a lot of posters. You don't see a lot of green ones or, like, yellow ones. You see a lot of the same colors over and over. So I kind of like that it's green, and uh, it's just a beautiful poster. Yeah, it is. There may be a little bit more talk of Rosemary's Baby coming up uh, here later nice. in the show. Yeah, I can't wait to hear your picks, I just have to say. I hope I've been wanting you guys to did do okay. this for a long time. So Yeah. Number one is the Polish poster for Antonioni's Blow Up. And it's one of the posters. This artist, Waldemar Sfirzi, did two posters, but this is the, his first shot at it. And um, it's like an extreme close-up of a photograph uh, where you just see the dots of the photo. So this is a real nice kind of like thematic poster. So it relates to the film itself. And it's rendered in this nice red, yellow, and blue. And I just love the colors. Love the design. Um, one day, I will have it on my wall. It's <laughs> well, just like, it's a very rare and sought-after po- uh, poster. And this is the Polish artists. They show you what happens when you remove all of the commercial constraints of Hollywood out of the equation. Hmm. And the artists can just do whatever they want. You get really interesting, like, kind of metaphoric posters like this. Yeah. Wow. All great selections, Sam. And I listed some of your credits here coming into the segment when I was introing you, and a couple I didn't get to that I do want to mention. You did the theatrical poster for Janus Films for House, as well as their One Sheets for La Ventura, which I love, and Fassbender's World on a Wire. Yeah. And, you know, just real quick, because we haven't talked about this a whole lot, I just want to say that 
I mentioned you've been sort of integrated into the show over the years at different points. Your scores that you pick out for our top 10 yeah. shows, and actually you were the inspiration for the blowouts, where we would do things like at the end of the year, best performance nice. in a bad movie and stuff like that. You would right. send those lists in, and it's great to kind of finally have you on to really get into something in-depth. And just in general, for me, it's such a treat because we go back to 2006, meeting yeah. in Nashville, when you were just a film spotting listener, didn't know each other at all, and yeah. we've been in touch ever since. And to see the success you're having, you know, as a musician and as an artist, is really a lot of fun for me. Oh man, it's been fun to follow y'all's journey too, and uh, be part of it. Love what y'all have always done, and I, I love when y'all do. I'd love to hear more lists like this, where you kind of step outside of the diegesis of a movie and mm-hmm. kind of like talk about more. This is kind of behind the scenes stuff. Can't wait to hear your picks and. I hope people might check out the podcast. We've talked about, like, Drew Struzan, who did all the Back to the Future and Indiana Jones posters, and we did an episode on the Polish artists as well. And uh, you guys can uh, put up a link, and people can have a listen. And it's nowhere near as professional as y'all's podcast. (laughs) But it's more of two guys just having a conversation for a couple hours. Well, we certainly will put up those links in our show notes, and we encourage our listeners to check you out and your show, samsmyth.net. That is S-A-M-S myth.net and of course theposterboys.tumblr.com or just do a search for the poster boys in iTunes. Sam, thank you again. Thanks so much, guys. See you. Well, here's hoping our list of the best movie posters get the Sam Smith seal of approval. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. Donation time after taking a week off. We've got a little bit of a backlog, nothing too extreme, Josh, but a couple of messages from our listeners we did want to share and some thanks that we wanted to send along as well. First, a note about our music, a little bit different than what you're used to hearing in our musical breaks this week. You're hearing Why Music, the classical sextet tracks from their 2014 album Balance Problems. They're on tour now with Ben Folds. In fact, They're playing in Chicago tonight, if you're listening to this on the day it was released, Friday, May 15th. They're also playing in Chicago on Saturday, May 16th, playing drums with Ben Folds and Y Music, the man you just heard from, Sam Smith. So a little bit of cross-promotional plugging there for Sam on tour with Ben and Y Music. Let's get to those donors. We start with one of my favorite names in film spotting history and Really, I think our only listener that I know of in Vilnius, Lithuania, he is Mindaugas. Also, Robert in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, and Rob in Sandy, Utah, longtime donor and supporter of the show. I had a chance to meet out at Sundance a few years back. He says, Film Spotting is still my favorite podcast many years later. Got my daughter listening now. Indoctrinating the next generation. Love it. Liam in Paris, France also writes in, 
with his donation. As a student, I can't donate regularly, only when I have the available funds, but I wanted to chip in for all the great work of recent episodes. Among the many great episodes, the Fast and Furious episode sealed the deal. My friend and I have had long and lengthy discussions about the merits and flaws of the series, even though we both disagree on the exact qualities, to the point where he wrote a lengthy defense of Fast and Furious as an example of metamodernism. No idea, but I love it. Metam- yeah, that's <laughs> new to me, too. It sounds like something you would I know. really go for. But more fundamentally, your show gives me the film discussion and analysis I don't get so often at the moment. I moved to Paris for my studies, and my French isn't good enough to engage in film analysis, and the English here isn't good enough for the reverse. So film spotting has grown to be a huge part of film discussion by proxy. Thanks for your work. Thank you, Liam. Thomas Darjean. I love to say it. He used to be in Lyon, France, but now he's in Lisbon. He's in Lisbon. Just playing Lisbon? Just playing Lisbon. I don't know what I can do with that, so I won't even try, but we'll split this one up, Josh. I will start, and I just want to throw out there before we really get into it, because I know you haven't read these comments yet. I think it's possible that he actually is confusing us a little bit. We'll see if you okay. agree. All right. Maybe, you know, it, it happens from time to time. Listeners sometimes can't tell the difference between which boneheaded host they're disagreeing with or agreeing with. Tomah writes in, Dear Adam and Josh and Sam and Michael, the time has come. The stars have aligned in the entrails of countless sacrifices scream of generous tidings. Like many before me, I will now pay the dealer. I've been meaning to do so for a while, but the gods of procrastination and ill intent were against me. But I now have a superior reason, nay, a duty to finally contribute to my favorite podcast. I've just listened to episode 527, What We Do in the Shadows, where Adam read my comments for the previous week's poll. Now, this was not the first time one of you read one of my comments, but I need to reward Adam, whose mispronunciation powers belong to legend. Oh, yeah, that's you. Uh Uh-huh. For not butchering my foreign (laughs) name and that of the city I was living in at the time of the poll, Lyon. He actually did a very good job with both. Josh, who is not similarly challenged? Uh, You might want to check with the people of Oregon about that. Seriously. (laughs) Deserves less recognition for his previous performance when another one of my comments was read. I also need, and this is probably far more important, to thank you for many other things, starting with the countless hours of entertainment and commute and lightning you have provided me. Thomas goes on, I have been listening for slightly more than a year now, and your discussions have informed my viewings of tens of movies and provided me with food for thought after having watched them. You've also allowed me to discover many movies and directors I would otherwise maybe have not heard about, some of which have become dear to my heart. I especially loved Brick, and am eternally grateful you introduced me to it. I also find the idea of the Golden Brick Award that the movie spawned a wonderful one. Some of the nominees are so little known that they don't reach French theaters, like Calvary, I believe, or Fly Under My Radar. Thank you for championing them. For these reasons, I have decided to ignore your many crimes. I will momentarily forget the kind words that were once spoken about Pacific Rim. Yeah, that would be you. Yeah. Or pain and gain. That's you. I, that's pretty clearly me, which I find extremely generous, Tomas says, and open-minded in the latter's case. Oh, okay. I will also ignore what Adam might or might not have said about Interstellar and the original The Avengers movie, which I will attribute to ephemeral bouts of raging madness. They're great, Adam. Great. Get a hold of yourself. Keep on spreading the good word. Yes, one of those movies is great. So Interstellar, you incorrectly have identified as great. I'm all in. The Avengers, (laughs) you did not care for so much. I I thought was okay. (laughs) We got it all straightened out now? I think we're all straight. The worst thing that Tomah did, though, was write in and say, hey, good job. You actually got it right, but you can really just call me Thomas. After all that? After all that fun, he's like, you can call me Thomas. After my perfect Tomah? I said, I'm never going to do that. I mean, I might as well just start calling him Tommy Dargent. Tommy Dargent in Lion. There you go. You know, I mean, that would be appropriate maybe with our butchering of names, but I'm not going to do it. Tomah is too much fun to say. 
A Silver Club donor. Thank you, Toma. Jeff in Muskegee, Oklahoma, who says he just sent his second email ever to us in response to our top five movies of 1992, but he forgot to say where he was from. So he rectified that by telling us with a donation that he's from Muskegee, Oklahoma, and he says film spotting rules. So I think that should apply to anyone out there. Maybe you'll leave a poll comment, but you forget to leave your location. Your penance is a donation. donation. Why not? Makes sense to me. A new $5 a month donor, Chris in Bakersfield, California. A new gold level donor, James C. right here in Chicago. And two new $10 a month donors, Lori in Cedar Hill, Texas. And finally, Bill Shun in Queens, New York. I've been a film spotting listener for three or four years now. I've donated in the past while I still lived in Chicago, and I've even been to a live show at Main Stage. But I now live in New York City, and it's been a while since I've donated. I now usually listen to film spotting while I make dinner, and inevitably I have to interrupt what I'm doing to scrawl more titles onto the list of movies I need to see. I can't tell you how many great films you've turned me on to. One of my favorites last year was Starred Up, which I never would have seen otherwise. But this donation is in honor of your recent Satchajit Ray Marathon. If it weren't for that, I probably wouldn't have jumped on the chance to attend the world premiere screening of the new Criterion Digital Restoration of Pather Panchali earlier this week on May 4th at the Museum of Modern Art. As it happened, this fell 60 years in one day after the original world premiere, also at the Museum of Modern Art. Ray's son Sandeep talked a little about his father's work on the film and introduced one of the actresses who played Durga in the film, who was also in attendance. They were both sitting a couple of rows behind us with Jim Jarmusch. The restoration really is miraculous and looks terrific, but more importantly, this was my first time seeing one of the treasures of world cinema, and it truly was a glorious movie, filled with as much joy as pain. I would have missed the opportunity to see it at that amazing event if your discussion of the film hadn't primed me to want to see it. So thank you for that. Now I look forward to seeing the rest of the trilogy in their restored editions, which are playing at Film Forum here in New York. And I'm in your debt. What a great note. I love that. Yeah, do too. We've had some people people say, why didn't you guys wait until these restorations came out? We didn't know when we started. Well, not not only that, but then something like this can happen. Yeah, there you go. If you did wait, like some listeners who have written in because they knew it was coming and they want to see the restoration and then they're going to go back and listen, well, that's fine too. That's the beauty of podcasting. They're still there waiting for you. They are. So, Bill, thank you. Thank you to everyone who donated and thank you to everyone who maybe will go seek out Father Panchali and the other Apu trilogy films because of those conversations. I know I can't wait for them to come to a theater here in Chicago. Hopefully we can take part in that fun again as well. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hi there, all you listeners over at Film Spotting Original Recipe. This is Allison Wilmore from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast. And on our new episode, Matt Singer and I try to decide who has the better dead-eyed stare, Ryan Gosling or Robert Durst. As we look at Andrew Jarecki's Based on a True Story movie inspired by Durst, All Good Things, as well as its stranger-than-fiction HBO follow-up, The Jinx. And inspired by Jarecki's twofer, we have some other true crime recommendations, all of which you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen to the show, search for us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Hey, I'm Ty Sheridan. And I'm David Gordon Green, the director of the film Joe, and we're here on Film Spotting.
listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. Music there from Bernard Herrmann's great score for Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Music that should evoke images of a woman's face in close-up, her unblinking eyes, and dizzying spirals. The film's memorable opening title sequence was designed by Saul Bass. He designed the poster as well. It's a poster, Josh, that I think we both would have been inclined to include in our top five favorite movie posters of all time. But alas, it's in the film spotting pantheon. It's one of those hanging in my house. It so is. That's it's one of those three. It, it is, yeah. Okay, well, I want to hear what the other two are. That was one of the questions I had for you to help set this up, if you're ready to admit those on air, because I have a list of my own. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, one of them's on my list, okay. so I'm not going to say that one now. The one that didn't make my list, in addition to Vertigo, because of the Pantheon, is Pinocchio, actually. And it's there a you smaller go. it's a smaller sure. print of it. It's not the huge size movie poster, but really evokes the eeriness of that supposed family film. Hmm. Well, before we get to the other question I want to pose to you, we'll mention that other films with great movie posters that are in the film spotting pantheon include Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars A New Hope, Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, Singing in the Rain, The Godfather, I think Raging Bull probably belongs in the conversation, Casablanca, Chinatown, We could go on and on. I don't know if there are going to be enough good choices left, Josh. But, of course, there are because we're choosing from every movie ever made to form this list. And behind the scenes, a little bit, you didn't really fight it. That would be putting it too strong. But you seemed a little bit hesitant about it. Maybe it's because we're so used to talking about performances and direction and movies in general and not so much things like art, the artwork, that we don't really have much of a grasp on. Neither of us are really capable when it comes to drawing or painting or sculpting or no, doing anything no, like I'm that. Not. So it's a little bit out of our realm. But by the time you were done forming your list, did you feel better about it? Were you glad that you went on this journey, so to speak, well, with this topic? I, yeah, I mean, my main concern was just wanting to do justice to the art uh, because it's it's not something I've explored too deeply yet, have always appreciated. That's why I have posters hanging in my house. But um, yeah, I feel better about it because I relied on a lot of experts, <laughs> so including Sam Smith. So that helped a little bit. And also, I thought, you know, part of this, as with any list we do, needs to be personal, my personal favorites. And it did cause me to think a little bit more deeply about, okay, given what the experts say, given what has personally appealed to me, how do I think about what a movie poster does well? And it came to mind that maybe it's similar to how I think about film adaptations of novels that I love. So I wanted these to be free to be their own work of art, okay, Mm -hmm. to stand on their own. But ideally, maybe they don't have to do this, but ideally somehow they're still evocative of the original art that inspired them. If it manages to pull those both off, then they made this list. Okay, so I'm going to jump in here because it turns out then we had a very similar mindset as we made our picks for this top five because I wanted to initially, and I did, focus on the poster itself separate from the movie. It had to catch my eye as a piece of art unto itself, and I wasn't just picking my favorite movies that also have great posters. But then I did want to consider it in relation to the film, and I hadn't really thought of it as almost like an adaptation, but is it imparting information? Is it imparting something essential about the movie, perhaps even literal in relation to the movie? But more importantly, is it expressing something essential? Yeah. So that gets to your well, use of the word evocative, whether it's a tone or mood. Literal or, is marketing. What you're talking about is art. Yeah, exactly. Highlighting maybe even a theme of the movie, something that does make it stand on its own, but also feels like you almost can't remove it from the thing that inspired it. Are we on the same page? We are. Okay, you're number five. 
My number five, well, one of the experts I leaned on was Stanley O. Oh. He's the gallery manager for New York City's Poster Toddy. It's a great source for buying movie posters of all sorts of kinds. I got to know them because they're one of the sponsors for my review site. And Stanley named one that actually also came to mind for me right away when I started thinking about this topic. It's on Sam Smith's list as well, Rosemary's Baby. That's where I definitely knew I had to go. This is the one that's against a foggy green backdrop, the ghostly profile of Mia Farrow's face looking up, and that silhouette of the tiny baby carriage that's superimposed over it. Not until I really sat and studied this for a little bit did I realize maybe it strikes most people right away, but it's positioned and aligned so it could almost be her teardrop uh, right where it is on the poster itself. So here's what Stanley said about it. One of my favorite one-sheet designs. Love the use of space and the understated type. There's some disagreement in the community as to attribution. The design is most likely the result of collaboration. He credits Steve Frankfurt and Philip Gibbs. The understated type, that's a big part of it for me. I love clean design in general, and this is all about sublimating the busy details on this poster, which in this case would mostly be the credits, and just leaving us with this stark, powerful, insidious image. Well, it turns out we're really on the same page. So on the same page that all three of us, it's a Rosemary's Baby trifecta. You had it too, huh? Put that in our top five, and no, we did not plan that ahead of time. And it turns out... I tried to avoid this, Josh. I don't know about you, but did you recognize just how many great horror movie options there are for this list? I think Tasha even said something about that at the end yeah. of last week's show I've when you were setting up the list. Three films on my list could be classified as horror. Yeah, I have three or four that maybe could fit into that category as well. Again, not plan, certainly not by design, but there is something about a good horror movie that can make for a really good, evocative movie poster. And despite all those great horror movie options, and then all those options that exist beyond the horror genre, somehow we landed on Rosemary's Baby, and I don't think it's an accident. For me, the source that was invaluable was one Sam recommended, Adrian Curry. He does the movie poster of the week Tumblr. And highlights so many great things. And there were a bunch of pieces of art. I'm going to get to some of them that I wasn't even familiar with until I saw them on his Tumblr page because some of them are foreign and not the traditional movie poster we maybe have seen before. I'll link to his Tumblr page and what you can find that Adrian does over on Mubi, our great partner there, in order to see more of what he does. But he talks about Frankfurt and the fact that he was one of these young buck advertising guys who was really kind of credited with being the first guy to take movie packaging and recognize that you needed to have sort of a unified theme across all the commercials, across all the artwork, and it even came down to the taglines. He's known for not only coming up with In Space No One Can Hear You Scream for Alien, but that great line on the poster, Pray for Rosemary's Baby. I'm with you, though. It's just the simplicity of that poster. Rosemary and her baby. You want to get literal. Yep. They're the two characters in the title, and they're there on the poster. And that green and the black, the smallness of the carriage, as you mentioned, juxtaposed with the primordial green ooze and that landscape just suggests peril. 
you know what's inside that baby carriage, at least what should be inside there. And something about it being so tiny and helpless against the vastness of that just instantly tells you that this is helpless and there is something wrong and something a little bit terrifying about what you're going to see. And that's matched by Mia Farrow's helplessness. Of course, if you see the movie, you know where that shot is directly taken from. It's from the conception sequence, but she's also helpless. She's lying down and almost strikes me in looking at the post like a resting saint or someone that's there to be a sacrifice. It's a little Joan of Arc. Which she is. Yeah. yeah, it is. Absolutely. Even, of course, down to her hair. But the tagline, too, is just one of those touches where the poster would be great without it, probably would have made all of our lists without it. But the simplicity of that and the creepiness of Pray for Rosemary's Baby on top of the green and black and everything else that's going on is just so, so perfect. Yeah. What do you think that landscape is supposed to be? I mean, it's like it implies sulfurous. It's like yeah. it's in the bottom of a volcano or right. something, even though it's green, not red. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think Central Park looks like that anyway. <laughs> no. All right. Number four, something a little more hopeful, at least. Uh, it's the Tree of Life. And this is the, there were a number of different posters for the Tree of Life. I'm going with the image of an infant's foot being cradled by a pair of hands with that bright white light seeping through in the background. I believe this is a still pulled directly from the film, in which case we're getting a pure image from the movie's two dominant visual poets. That'd be writer-director Terrence Malick and cinematographer Emmanuel Lubezki. I do really like that collage poster they did for The Tree of Life as well, which has about 70 individual frames from the movie's kaleidoscope of images and just gives us all of them in one gorgeous blast of color. That captures the whole scope of the movie, but... I feel that this one also, in its own way, the way it evokes new life and journey and providence and vulnerability, this one stark image gives us all of those senses, I feel like, that it too encapsulates the movie just with the picture of a baby's foot. It's so perfect. It's an honorable mention for me. I just saw it as I was reviewing my list earlier today and was immediately struck by the fact that it needed to be in consideration, not only because I love the movie as much as you do, but it does somehow sum up the overall grandness of that film and the ambition. Yeah. Something about seeing the smallness of that foot within the vastness, relatively speaking, of that hand speaks to what that whole film is really all about. And it also hit me today, and am I being too literal here, but the way you have the limbs crossing each other in that frame, because you've got, obviously, two hands, and you've got a foot, and probably another foot that's just kind of going off camera, it feels a little bit like a tree to me. It feels like roots. Oh, it feels sure. like limbs of a tree. Branches. The hands, yeah, the branches are also being formed by those arms and legs. Yeah, and I think this is an incident too of, you know, this is a common picture people take when they have children of, you know, one of the parents maybe holding the foot just to show how tiny it is. And I'm sure it was done well before the tree of life too. But somehow when you get an artist taking an image, we've seen many other times, they just imbue it with this extra level of magic that this poster captures. Yeah, such a good pick. I didn't realize at all that I had a little bit of a connection here between my five and four, but I'm going from the devil in Rosemary's Baby to this one. You don't make up for your sins at a church. You do it in the streets. You do it at home. That's the opening voiceover from Martin Scorsese's breakout feature, Mean Streets. And the poster is one that I'm not sure we know who the designer was. I did some searching today. It's not attributed to anyone in particular. It's just a Warner Brothers production. Whoever did it did a great job. You've got a hand holding a gun. The arm that's holding it 
could be the street, sort of. You see a stoop, maybe, and a stop sign in the bottom left of the frame, and above it, and I guess depth-wise behind it, looming over it all is the city. Apartments with fire escapes, tall skyscrapers, but it's all very artistically rendered. It's not a literal cityscape. And in one of the windows appears to be a woman, and if you know the movie... Kaitel's Charlie struggles with his relationship with Johnny Boy, Robert De Niro's character, his cousin, Teresa. And I think just seeing her in the window is emblematic of the sin and the temptation that he feels. There are some versions of this poster I've seen that are just really white and the city stuff is all gray and black and the mean streets is the only color. The text is in red. But other versions, I think it's the traditional one, is the one I really love where it is more in color. The bottom is an orangish yellow, like a fire that gets darker and darker red as it overtakes the city. And there are other versions that have a tagline as well that says, go to church on Sunday, go to hell on Monday. But we get a visual representation of that threat of hell, I think, in that color scheme. And I haven't even mentioned the way the gun points upward and blends in like a building, the smoke coming out of the top like a building chimney, and you can equate smoke to hell as well, of course, if you want to. I think, though, that gun, the way it so perfectly fits into that cityscape, it reflects how inextricable that type of life is from the city, from the streets. The way of sin, I guess, is always directly linked to that city. And contrast it with something like the Taxi Driver poster. This movie is just as gritty, should be just as real and authentic as something like Taxi Driver, but that's one where you've got the Travis Bickle character basically just walking down the street. This isn't that realistic. It's more abstract. And that fits with that overall conflict in the movie of the physical world versus the abstract, the streets, the here and now versus the poetic and the eternal, that struggle that's present throughout not only this film, but so much of Scorsese's work. It's all right there in the poster for Mean Streets. What I like about the color one, too, is there's something very late 60s. And I know this was, what, 73. Yeah. But, but that sort of era, early, late 60s, early 70s, gives it that feel and roots it in a time and place uh, with a little bit the typeface that's used, but the colors, too. Mm-hmm. All right, my number three came through a listener who on Facebook, his name is Matt Thurston, he pointed me to a recent L.A. Times piece from film critic Kenneth Turan where he writes about his love for Golden Age movie posters specifically. So I browsed through some of those that he listed, and the one that jumped out to me instantly was for 1927's London After Midnight, which stars Lon Chaney. It was directed by Todd Browning. There are no surviving prints of this film, which only adds to the ephemeral nature of the poster itself. It's mostly an impressionistic landscape painting of a London bridge glowing at night, but towering over it are two figures. There's a pale woman who's staring straight at you. And imagine this is like, you know, the size of Godzilla. That's how big these figures are. So she's staring straight at you. Then there's this ghoulish man behind her in a top hat. His teeth are bared. His hair is wild. His skin is gangrene. And he has one hand with these long nails that are on her arm, while the other is draped over her shoulders and pointing at us again. So it's very confrontational, this poster. Uh, And if you look closely, you'll notice that she has these long green fingers, too, which don't necessarily match the color of her skin, of her face that we see. So there's a lot of weirdness going on here. This is probably not a pair that you want to hang out with, but they're a pair in a movie that I definitely do want to see. So it does its job. Wow. You've got me intrigued. It's one I'm not familiar with at all and will definitely take a look at online. And speaking of that, as you're listening to Film Spotting, we're sharing our top five all-time favorite movie posters. We recognize that it's a little bit difficult 
for this top five in particular to maybe get the most out of it when we're talking about something so visual. Movies are always visual, but you can play a scene sometimes and play some audio to back up and support whatever you're trying to articulate. Here, we're really diving into these posters, and unless you're online as well, Googling them, you can't necessarily hey, play along. Hey, that's not a bad idea. Exactly. I will also say that when you're done listening, when you get to a computer, if you want to see the posters we're talking about, you don't have to Google them. Just go to filmspotting.net, click on top fives. We will include all the images there with our selections. My number three, I swear, I did not plan any kind of through line. Really, it just worked out this way. My number three is the poster for the Powell Pressburger film, Black Narcissus. And this is not a horror movie, Josh, but it is one that you could argue becomes a psychological horror movie, similar to my number five pick, Rosemary's Baby. The poster I'm going with, though, isn't any of the UK versions or other traditional versions you might see when you Google it. It is the German poster for Black Narcissus. It was the poster designed for the 1948 premiere of the movie in Hamburg. The designer here just as with my number four pick, unfortunately unknown. And I looked at those other posters, and they're fine, the other Black Narcissus posters, but they wouldn't come close to making this list. And Black Narcissus, even as a movie, Josh, I really appreciate it, as I appreciate every Archer's film that I've seen. But when we did a Powell Pressburger marathon several years ago here on the show, it wasn't among my top three or four from that marathon. That's just how good their movies are. But this poster just captivated me when I saw it in preparation for this list. Instead of selling this technicolor adventure drama, ornate with splashes of color everywhere and a very busy design like the other posters do for this movie, it takes that amazing showdown at the end of the film between Deborah Carr's sister Cloda and Kathleen Byron's sister Ruth, and it turns it into this triumph of the will struggle. It becomes epic and expressionistic and a struggle between not maybe good and evil, but at least rationality and insanity, reason and intellect versus passion and emotion. And in the movie, we do see Ruth wearing a red dress, but it's a very muted red dress. The dress is actually not as red as her eyes. Powell and Pressburger really emphasize that she's gone mad. She's let this kind of passion and jealousy consume her. But the red on the poster is a very vivid red that stands out against the black and greenish blue colors that dominate the design. And of course, stand out against Cloda's white dress as she's pulling on the big bell of the convent and she's clinging to the rope there in the Himalayas, hanging on for dear life. An interesting element of the poster, I know, Josh, you're looking at it right now. Do you notice that Ruth is actually holding out her hand to Sister Cloda as if she's trying to pull her back up to safety, which, if you've seen the movie is not at all what she's trying to do in that moment. And I just find that very striking. I don't know if there's something more were to read into that, but it's a hopeful reading on the end of the movie somehow that, of course, doesn't really get matched by the movie itself, but instantly fell in love when I saw that Black Narcissus German poster. Yeah, the colors here are just amazing. Even though there aren't that many of them, what it essentially does is it makes the costume design the main actors in the poster. Even their skin tones looking at it are the same as the background, Yeah, uh, that, that sort of blue, that light mm-hmm. blue, but you've got the white robe 
on the one figure and then that red dress. Yeah, they become about. symbols almost more than yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, I love this one. All right, my number two is from La Dolce Vita. It's the original release poster by Giorgio Olivetti. This is the one that has the large head of Marcello Mastriani shaded in blue while he's smoking a cigarette. That's on the right. And then the full figure of Anita Ekberg on the left. It's a personal pick. This is the other one of the three that's hanging in my house. And this is a big one. It's also a stereotypical pick. I mean, this is the sort of poster that you will find in the homes of people who have never seen La Dolce Vita. Yeah, trying to (laughs) impress someone. It's everywhere. But you know what? I think that partly speaks to its power. This this not only evokes something of La Dolce Vita, I think it evokes the entire sensual allure of the movies themselves beyond any specific film. That, that red glow of his cigarette, which emerges from the blue area of the poster, it trails up and out of the poster frame, and then another red in a dress here. It's the swirl of Eckberg's skirt that's red. And of course, not to mention just Eckberg herself, you might assume that her form has been exaggerated by Olivetti. But then if you see the movie, you'll realize, well, not so much. That is what she looks like. And Mastriani's line of vision in the poster, it goes right to her. It's, it's like a dart right looking at her. So this has the promise of cool, has the promise of mystery, of sex. It certainly captures the allure of the sweet life, which is something that the movies have long promised, that you're going to live vicariously through these figures. So to see you know, the downside of the hedonistic pursuit of the sweet life, you'd actually have to watch the movie itself. But that promise is all up here in the poster. Yeah, it's a great, great poster and a great choice. My number two pick comes from a designer I can name because he's already been named, actually. During our conversation, Sam Smith singled out Neil Kellerhouse as one of the designers anyone interested in movie posters should be paying attention to. And our listeners are familiar with his work, whether they know it by name or not, from A lot of stuff he's done with David Fincher, like Gone Girl and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and The Social Network. But the one I'm going with is his work for Jonathan Glazer and his poster for one of our favorite films from last year, Under the Skin, starring Scarlett Johansson. A lot of times, of course, you can't actually see or hear some of the names we've mentioned so far describing their process. You can actually do that with Keller House. It's not very long, but there's a two-minute video on Vimeo where you can hear him talk about what he had in mind when he designed the poster. And you actually do get to see some of the different iterations of the poster as it began and the different versions. I wouldn't say it's overly revealing, whether he just doesn't want to reveal it or He doesn't have a whole lot to say. Sometimes describing how you made a piece of art is more difficult than making the piece of art itself, especially if it's really good. And I think this poster is really good. But he says something, Josh, that I think speaks to what we both talked about in setting up our list. He mentions that the image of Scarlett Johansson's face that we see in the poster is an image of her face from the movie where it's in daylight, I believe, and it's just her face looking out over the steering wheel like so many shots from the film are but he says that he wanted to design something that was appropriate and not just kind of an esoteric pretty picture because he says it's not difficult to make a pretty picture and i think that's an interesting point that we would think that's the hardest part to make something really visually striking but he's saying any designer can come up with something that looks cool but how do you make it not only cool but make it appropriate and the word he uses is genuine and i think he nails that because what we get ultimately in seeing Scarlett Johansson and her face against this starscape and the colors, the blue and the red sort of reflected on her face is a pretty picture, but 
the use of that black space and the stars suggests a sci-fi component to the film, which, of course, the movie has, that this person, this entity, is somehow otherworldly. There's even, I could be reading too much into it, but when you get some of the sparkles that look like they might be stars or bits of color, flecks of color in her eye, it makes me think of the Terminator, the redness of the specks against her eye, like there's something just off with this character, something not human about this character, and the color the blue on her chin and lips and the red on her cheek. I honestly don't know what to make of those other than they look great against the black of space. But they also made me think of all the reflections we constantly see in the movie through the windshield and the windows because she's doing her stalking, doing her driving at night and sees a lot of those lights. The most significant element, though, of course, is that it's Scarlett Johansson and her face, but she's mostly obscured. Depending on which version of the poster you see and how light your computer screen is, the right side of her face is almost entirely blending into the dark. So it defies you to see this movie star, to see this prominent actress, and challenges you to really explore what you're seeing while not just trading solely on her beauty. And of course, that's perfectly in sync with the challenges that that movie directed by Jonathan Glazer presents to the viewer. Yeah, this is probably one of the most recent posters I did consider for the list, too. It's really striking. For my number one, though, I went with an obvious pick, a nostalgic pick, but one that I think is really effective as a movie poster, too. That's Jaws. It's it's hideously effective, actually. It's also drawn directly from the paperback book cover for Peter Benchley's novel. So maybe I'm really praising that, but it works as a movie poster, too. It's a painting by Roger Castle, who also did the poster for The Empire Strikes Back, the most iconic one there. And like Jaws, this is an exercise in blunt terror. It just has a woman swimming at the top of the poster, unaware that a giant bullet of teeth is streaming directly toward her from below. This is another example of using the space within the conventional poster frame. And when you think about it, these artists have to deal with the same space all the time, unlike a movie director who can conform that theater screen a variety of different ways, depending on what they have to show. You're more confined here. And this is what we get. The air, which is, you know, life above water, is just the tiniest little bit, maybe a tenth of the poster space up on top. Most of it is devoted to the deathly deep. Mm -hmm. And going back to color, the blue gets darker as it goes further down to the bottom of the poster. The shark is huge. I mean, it's much bigger than the shark in the movie. Just probably like six or seven times the size of what we actually get. But he's also unnaturally perpendicular. It's, It's as if... This creature was created for no other purpose than to eat this one woman. Right. <laughs> and and he's he's there. He's going to do it. Uh, also, you know, as in the movie's opening scene, this particular victim is skinny dipping. So maybe this is part of that sex as death horror trope that's been talked about when it comes to a recent film like It Follows. But you know what? Combining those two things here in this one stark image certainly gets your juices flowing. You know, a lot has been made about the fact that Jaws put a lot of people off of going in the water and going in the ocean, right? And even I remember as a kid when I finally saw Jaws later in the 80s being a little bit afraid of going in the deep end of the pool. Sure. somehow I thought (laughs) Jaws might be there in our 10-foot pool. If he's in the pool, that's where he's going to be. Exactly. But here's my thing. It occurs to me, as you talk about the shark and this amazing, iconic poster, that maybe we weren't so afraid of the movie. We were afraid of the poster. Wow. 
poster alone and the size of that shark underneath that woman's swimming might have been enough to traumatize all of us. <laughs> it could be. So I found out that you were going to make this your number one, and I instantly started writing back to you today, Josh, saying, yeah, great pick, but Jaws is in the Pantheon. You can't do it. I checked. It's not. And then I checked. And it's Why not. Why is it not in the Pantheon? Well, we're going to rectify that now. This time. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is becoming a habit. I know. Hey, every <laughs> once in a while, you just got to anoint a movie into the Pantheon. It's been probably two years since we last did it before I was going to say, weeks I ago. think it's been two weeks. Well, there you go. You got to do it every once in a while. Sometimes I, I, they in come in bunches. Complete agreement when it comes to Jaws. This time, producer Sam Van Hogren approved. He agrees. I'm glad you asked him ahead of time. I did. This time after just going... <laughs> Instead of pulling an audible. Just going on our own and being rebellious with, what was the movie we just recently put in? No, I can't even remember. I know, I can't it either. It wasn't another... Spe- oh, no, Back to the Future's been in. It's not Back to the Future. Unforgiven. That's what Unforgiven it is. is Unforgiven is the movie, our top five movies of 1992. Okay. We are putting Jaws where it belongs, in the Pantheon. What is this, your farewell speech? Your farewell to the troops? Have a good trip. Well, I don't know how I follow all of that up with my number one, but I'll try. I'm going with Ingmar Bergman's 1966 psychological, yes, horror movie, you can call it that if you want, Persona, starring... Liv Ullman and B.B. Anderson, and just a little bit of plot here for this movie, if you haven't seen it, because it is essential to the poster, is you've got B.B. Anderson as a nurse who takes a job taking care of an actress, played by Liv Ullman, who has just all of a sudden gone mute. They can't find an explanation for it, but she needs someone to take care of her. She can't speak anymore, and the doctor suggests that they go off to the seaside resort, and she will convalesce and get better and somehow overcome whatever trauma is causing her to no longer speak. And B.B. Anderson's nurse is going to be the one who helps her get there. Of course, if you've seen it, what you know is things get a little weird between them and their identities sort of start to merge into one and they lose sense of who they really are as individuals as things become more and more blurred. And Bergman, of course, is constantly showing this by giving us shots where their faces are merging together or overlapping. And the poster, a little bit of a cheat here, Josh, because I really think it's essential to have these two posters together. I would hang these two posters for Persona in one frame. I think they're that essential to have together. The first one is the traditional one you'll see for the movie where it's an image from the film where Liv Ullman's on the left looking at the camera, B.B. Anderson's on the right, and she kind of has her head against Liv Ullman's shoulder. And Ullman's hand is around her head, almost pulling her towards her. They've taken that but fractured them. There's now a black space between them, and each character is drenched in a sort of eerie, creepy red color against that blackness. And what you see is their faces are actually puzzle pieces. And it suggests that, you know, maybe those two pieces, which really should be two separate pieces are being pushed into one or could be pushed into one. But then as you look at it, you start to think, well, yeah, those pieces do fit together, but what do they construct? Yeah, that's, you know? that's the brilliance of it. It really is. Like, is that a You don't figure, want to see it together. No, you don't really want to see it together. And that struggle, that conflict is really at the heart of the movie. So here's what I love, though. Here's why I love so much both of these posters together. You then get the Japanese version, or some people just call it the foreign version of Persona. What does that look like? I know you're looking at it right now, and it has taken this whole seaside 
beach theme. And it's taken a shot from the movie where now the puzzle pieces aren't split apart, but they are now actually overlapping each other in sort of an X formation. They're embracing each other. Liv Ullman is actually kissing B.B. Anderson on the back of the neck. It's so warm. The colors are yellow and there's a glow to it. And down at the bottom, you see each character. Liv Ullman looks like she's maybe going to go sit and dip her feet in the water and B.B. Anderson's getting some sun with her sunglasses yeah, on. Smaller figures. On yeah, the bottom, smaller yeah. figures in the bottom. And you just wonder what they were trying to sell with that movie. I'm sure it was maybe, I'm just going to speculate, more of a crass kind of marketing ploy to not try to sell the fact that this is a really weird, creepy movie about these fractured psyches and try to sell something a little bit warmer and pleasurable. But I love that. I love those two things being juxtaposed with each other. I love somehow, Josh, just the idea that what's maybe happening between Liv Ullman and B.B. Anderson in this film is something that we should actually have an emotional investment in and be supporting. It it feels to me almost like with these two posters together, there's that perfect juxtaposition of the horror of human interaction and the pure tenderness of human interaction. And I would love those posters in my basement right next to each other, reminding me, Josh, of the yin and the yang of it all. Okay, but you've got to pick. If I had to pick, I'd pick the puzzle. I knew you were going to make me do that, and that's what's beautiful about my cheat. The puzzle stands on its own. And and the other one is 1A. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Good. Are you are you happy now? Yes, I'm so much happier. You thwarted my attempt to cheat. I'm glad that makes. I'd rather feel have better. a one A, two, three, four, five than a top six. Well, those are our top five movie posters. We'll get to some honorable mentions, but first, you want to hear the other movie posters that yes, I've owned, please, Josh. My first one, the one I first got, probably back in college, that just really speaks to sort of pretentious cinephile trying to impress people. Willow, how did you know? <laughs> Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah, sure. Apocalypse Now with that big Marlon <laughs> nope. Brando head and the red sun. Yeah. People came into your dorm room and oh, was like, they knew I was, who's this? I was legit. Smart, <laughs> creepy guy. That's right. Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Fargo. Oh, the that's usual a great suspects. one. Tombstone. Hmm. Tombstone. Can't, can't bring its mind right Love now. Love it. But... Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, shoot out at the OK Corral, walking right. down the street. Heat, speaking of Val Kilmer, Robert De Niro. And then one movie poster I still have up. Now, though, I should have looked this up. I don't know that it's actually the movie poster. I think it's more just a frame from the movie. The two most gorgeous people in the history of cinema together in one film, Antonioni's Les Eclis, where you have Alain Delon and Monica Vitti embracing each other in black and white. So, yes, a movie poster from that film, though not really the, the marketing tool, I guess, for that movie, if you will. What about other movies you considered but left off, Josh? So another name that came up quite a bit in suggestions and just looking around on the web was Drew Struzan, who did a lot of the iconic character group illustrations for the likes of, well, some Pantheon films like Star Wars, also more recently the Harry Potter films. So a little bit of the blockbuster posters of my childhood there by Drew Struzan. The alien poster with the cracking egg, Mm -hmm. that one a lot of people suggested. It has more of the eerie green that's in both my Rosemary's Baby and London After Midnight picks. So there must be something about that, which I really like. Also could be a horror movie. And then the Phantom Menace poster with little Anakin's shadow casting the shadow of Darth Vader. I mean, it just captures everything that that prequel group was about. I like that one. Well. It captures it better than the prequels do. All right, come on. But the poster's fantastic, but all those Star Wars posters are, so I'm glad that with those prequels even, they kept that tradition alive. We talked a lot about how horror was an easy go-to for some of these, despite the fact that neither of us are really go-to horror geeks, but some of the ones that I at least did have to give a 
little bit of a glance to and consider. The Exorcist, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, The Thing, and Peter Strickland, who recently made The Duke of Burgundy, which is a great poster. Barbarian Sound Studio, also a great poster. And you can go back to some of the classics, Halloween, Suspiria. I also really think the Donnie Darko poster is fantastic. But the best one of all those, the one that really almost crept into my list, one of our blind spotting reviews, the first ever, David Lynch's Eraserhead. Oh, yeah. Just that big, black and white Jack Nance head with that hair. That's, that's classic. The Truman Show is really good. The 40-Year-Old Virgin is really good. Of course, The Tree of Life, A Clockwork Orange. And I did also strongly consider one of Sam's top five, Anatomy of a Murder. A couple more here. Manhattan from Woody Allen. Bertolucci's The Conformist. Blade Runner and... How good is the train spotting poster? Yeah, that's The Choose nice. Life, that whole monologue, instead of going with any imagery from the film that really does force you to contemplate it, force you to really look at it and digest it, I think that one's really good. There are so many others we could mention, and we hope to hear from you on the ones that we miss, the ones that you love. Send your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. We're also at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Over at Filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of show archives, including many adoring mentions, yes, of Michael Fassbender, reviews of the recent X-Men prequels, and last year's excellent Frank. Speaking of great posters from last year. Oh, that is a good one. The paper mache head. So good. Also at Filmspotting.net, take a moment and vote in the current Filmspotting poll. We want to know your favorite Brad Bird film. Opening in limited release, some titles we want to highlight, Lambert and Stamp. This is a documentary about the aspiring filmmakers who became the managers for The Who. Also out, I Am Big Bird, the Carol Spinney story. Spinney is 78 and has been playing Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch since Sesame Street start in 1969. I've heard good things about this documentary. Iris, Albert Maisel's film, of course, recently departed Albert Maisel's great documentarian. His film about the fashion and interior design maven Iris Apfel is playing at the Music Box. And how about this, Josh? The Film Critic. How can we resist a movie called The Film Critic, a comedy from Argentina about a pretentious film critic, is there any other kind, who is horrified to find himself in a romantic comedy? I wonder which one they were envisioning. I don't know. It's also available via VOD and Good Kill, another one out that I'm curious about. It's a movie about the ethics of drone warfare from Andrew Nichol, who you may know from Gattaca. And that movie star, Ethan Hawke, is the star of Good Kill. Out wide this weekend, oh, it's a good weekend because it's the weekend of Mad Max Fury Road, Tom Hardy. But it's also the weekend of the wondrous Anna Kendrick in Pitch Perfect 2. Do you have your advanced tickets yet? Not yet, but... You better get out. I'll get that. there. I'll get there. I'm sure it's going to be sold out. I don't want to see out. you elbowing any tweens out of the line, so you can be sure to get a ticket. I'll do whatever it takes to get into Pitch Perfect 2, okay? Next week on the show, our plan right now is to talk about Mad Max Fury Road and somehow not Pitch Perfect 2, and we were considering a top five called Movies of Few Words. So movies sort of like Mad Max that if you look at the screenplay, there's not a lot of dialogue. Isn't going to take up a whole lot of pages. But the movies are really, really good anyway. They basically get by on their visuals and their design. That's the plan. But as of right now, we do have to admit that some things are up in the air in terms of our schedules. We're not sure which two hosts will actually be doing this show. (laughs) One of us will be here. Yeah, I think you can safely say that, that (laughs) one of us will be here. So, And it probably won't be me. It probably won't. Okay, but, but we'll you never tr- know. But we're still I'm in still process working of, things behind the scenes. Of finding it could to be fill a pretty in. special show. You know, but I I um, just don't want this to turn into an it follows situation where a movie deserving of praise like Mad Max Fury Road is 
ends up just kind of being, you know, shoulder shrugged yeah. by two people. Okay. All right. I'll so keep that in mind. Try, try to find someone who's <laughs> I'll do got an I open can. mind. Okay. Wow, pressure. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is by Y Music. There's more information at ymusicensemble.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.